The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Hello everyone and welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm Maya Pavinska-Sims, the EMEA editor of The Homes Report and I'm joined here in a rather damp December London today with Jenny Scott, who is one of the founding partners at Appella Advisors, a new strategic comms consultancy with very oppressive pedigree. Um, Appella was launched in April this year by founding partners Jenny, who is Executive Director of Communications at the Bank of England and also a previous broadcast comm specialist as a BBC politics show presenter. James Asian Gray, who left his role as APCO UKMD last year um, after serving in some really serious uh, global positions at Grayling. And Matt Young, who was previously Lloyd's Corporate Affairs Director. Um, Appel is also chaired by Julian Hansen-Smith, who many of you know from founding Stockwell and co-founding Financial Dynamics. So that's you know, four quite serious people <laughs> in I a should, room. I should mention my colleague, Anthony Silverman, as well. He won't forgive me if I leave him out. He joined us a couple of um, weeks yes, ago. He we, was... did that. We, did his, we did his announcement yes, did. story. Yes, Welcome, yeah. Anthony, as well, to the fold. Um, thank you for joining me, Jenny. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so for having me. So tell me about your background, which is uh, interesting, and how you actually got to your current role. Um, I w- it started with a love of economics. I studied that at university, always um, loved that combination of art and science and figuring out how the world mm. works. Um, initially joined the Bank of England as an economist and then went into journalism from there, went to Reuters for about um, six or seven years. Uh, then I um, jumped over to the BBC and did broadcast journalism for a number of years. And then in 2008, um, uh, it was about three months before Lehman's went under, I joined the Bank of England as their comms director. So it was my first move um, from journalism into the other side of the fence. And it was quite the baptism of fire. Interesting timing. (laughs) Yeah. What did um, that entail? um, uh, It was, I mean, we had a fairly small press office at the time. There were about three or four press officers because up until then, the main job had been to be honest, to say no comment uh, okay. and keep us on the back pages. Okay. Um, and then that strategy didn't play out so well no, during the clearly. crisis. So um, uh, we just had to um, skill up and learn very, very fast. But it was a huge privilege to be at the table mm. during the financial crisis. Um, you know, at the time, of course, it doesn't feel that privilege. It just feels extremely stressful. But it was a huge privilege. Um, and what has the function there learned from having to shift gears so quickly during that period, do you think? Has that, has that maintained itself over the intervening decade? It's definitely, there's been a step change mm. in the way that... Um, uh, press relations and media are run at the Bank of England now. Absolutely. I think there's a broader recognition that communications is a legitimate policy tool. Okay. You could do the best policies you like, but if no one can understand them and, and no one um, uh, sort of follows through on them because they haven't heard of them, then they're not going to be as effective. Yeah. And I think um, certainly uh, Mervyn King, but also very much the current governor, recognised um, that. Uh, uh, so the, the actual department itself has grown quite a lot and um, we introduced um, dep- uh, little areas, teams like stakeholder relations. So recognising, which is something that we might get to talk about later, but recognising that um, all external stakeholders 
are important for the bank. It wasn't just economists and people in the city. It's it's everybody. Um, we introduced a public understanding unit. So again, we did some research and found that the more people understand the institution, the more they trust it. Mm. And of course, the more they trust it, the more effective the policies are. So we did a lot of work on making um, what the bank did resonate with with the public. So yeah, mm-hmm. there's definitely been a change in focus um, and uh, a big step change in just the, sort of the sheer size and what the department does. And then what tempted you to move over to agency? Um, it was the attraction of setting up my own shop with my wonderful fellow founders. Um, I, uh, it's a cracking team, I have to say. brilliant people. I have to say that because they're going to be listening to this, <laughs> but they are genuinely a really, really sound bunch of people. Mm. Um, I wanted to be like most people in an environment that was going to be intellectually challenging, mm. um, uh, that had impact, that meant something, all those things that, you know, everyone wakes up and wants to do with their day. Yeah. Um, I was a bit worried that if I just went into straight agency comms, um, I, it would be a bit like grazing all day and not eating a proper meal. Whereas I think with the, the, the sort of the common thread of having your own agency and building your own culture and building a firm that you can be really proud of, I knew that would be the anchor that um, I would need. Yeah. The equivalent, I guess, of the in-house role of the sort of the North Star and then the variety of the um, the, the, the contract work as it came in. And how how is it going so far? It's it's great fun. Um, I would say that, but it, it is. It's. Um, it's I have been... to say, strategic comms mm. and great fun are not necessarily two phrases that everyone will put in the same sentence. But I'm I delighted. Think, I think maybe have. it's the startup element that yeah. adds the fun to it as well. You know, we all um, sort of we all fix the printer. Uh, you know, we joke that James is in charge of HR because when the new person joins, he gives them a cup of coffee and a chat. Wow. Um, James has uh, learned to make a cup of coffee. Well, no, no, he buys, sorry, he buys a cup of coffee <laughs> okay, and gives them a correction. chat. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that whole, I mean, I've been, you know, Bank of England, BBC, Reuters, incredibly mm. frameworked um, institutions. Yeah. And to go from that at my grand old age to a startup has been um, challenging, exhilarating, nerve wracking but exactly what I needed at this time to sort of, you know, shake the bottle and wake the drink. Amazing. I think we're both a similar grand old age, Probably. so I empathise <laughs> completely. Um, now, you've got a new report out from Appel. You haven't stopped uh, in, in your navel-gazing of building a new agency, and you've actually produced some actual thought leadership, which is amazing. And this looks at... Now, purpose is like... We mm. talk about purpose on a weekly basis on the, on the pod, but you've looked at how brands can prepare for the impact of the new movement towards purpose. So you've taken a slightly different take um, to a lot of the reports we've seen. And you start quite dramatically, but not unreasonably. I'm just going to quote you here. The corporate pendulum is showing signs of having swung too far. The unremitting focus on short-term profit maximisation has proved divisive and damaging. The world is out of balance. So that's kind of quite apocalyptic Mm. in its framework for why you've decided to do this report. Tell us about why you decided to do the the report and why now? We decided was, so first of all, you're right to say that purpose comes up an awful lot and we're very aware of that. And, you know, you can almost hear people sigh, um, you know, certainly inwardly, if not outwardly, when you say what you're building at purpose. Really? Another one? Does the world really need another agency focused on purpose? So I think it means different things to different people. Uh, um, And to us, it means... Essentially, it means looking at um, all of this. We call them all of the stakeholders 
um, across society and mm. just making sure that you pay attention and look after each one of them rather than in you know the, the Milton Friedman-esque world of short-term profit maximisation focusing on just the investor and just for the short term. And I think that was the, the point of that quote that you just gave in the opening, which is that um, uh, there's been such a focus on that short-term profit maximisation that as ever with these things, there's even an economic theory about it where mm. the, the pendulum always swings too far and then it'll swing too far back the other way unless you get ahead of it, take control of it and be proactive about it. So part of the reason for writing the report was to encourage companies to take that into their own hands and to look around them and figure out what do I need to do if I want to be here, not just surviving, but thriving in 5, 10, 20 years' time. And we firmly believe that that means you have to look after multiple stakeholders over multiple time horizons. And then to look at that through the reputation lens, because that is what we've all been doing for the last 25, 30 years, um, we we think of stakeholders as value generators as well. So, for example, we did some research which shows academic independent research which shows that if your employees are motivated, I mean, it's not rocket science. If if your employees are motivated and they have a north star they can follow and they um, they will work harder and they won't leave your leave the job and so you save on turnover costs and you get more productive employees. So you gain some value from that. As I say, it it. it it's not rocket science, but it's been surprisingly hard mm. to um, prove that, if you like, whereas there are now a number of academic studies which we collate in the report, which tries to take um, the personal out of the profit versus purpose okay. and tries to say perhaps there isn't a trade-off between profit and purpose. Perhaps actually you can and do have both. And tell me a bit about this time frame element because that seems to be a different thing from what we've seen before in discussions about purpose that it's not it's not a thing it's a short medium long term and you know super long term yeah i mean i think if you um put purpose as the guiding star in a as the guiding light in a strategy then it's it's the usual strategic rules that apply you know you have the long-term stretch vision Mm. then you have the the milestones along the way in the medium term Um, if you can build a a compelling narrative and a good evidence base for the fact that you will get to the long term then maybe the difficult decisions you have to take in the short term maybe you would hope that the reputation that that you can build off that sees you through those short-term slumps that you maybe need to invest a bit more and and cut a little bit off your profit before you 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 reach the sunny uplands Um, so we think about it as purpose, strategy and reputation, where the purpose is the North Star. You have to operationalise it through the strategy. You yeah. can't just talk about it as tempting as that is. That gives you and generates a great reputation. And in turn, that reputation gives you the cover to implement the strategy through the slightly difficult times. Yeah, which may be some years. Yes, absolutely. And, and, then, and we also think about um, reputation. We talk in the paper about reputation being the canary in the coal mine. Okay. So... If you think about stakeholders as value generators, as the example with the employees or customers being more loyal and sticky or um, investors seeing you through the downtimes, um, it begins to really matter what those stakeholders think of your company. Um, And therefore, reputation really matters. And if you see that reputation falling off, uh, that maybe is a sign of some trouble ahead, that those value generators aren't going to generate so much value. Mm So um, I think it's, I'm hoping it's a great way to get comms professionals at the boardroom table alongside their 
CFO colleagues and their COO colleagues mm. um, talking in rigorous evidence-based language yeah. to show how what they do can not just be a cost center anymore, but it can actually be a value generator. And I'm really optimistic that in a multi-stakeholder world that could happen. And it's a different... Um, it's a different sort of language, isn't it? It's a different sort of conversation that comms has been involved with hitherto. And it's it's something that um, most agencies I know would lo- would love to be talking about. But the, the language has not necessarily been business focused hitherto. And actually, I think if you nail mm. the purpose imperative of that brand, then you're starting to have a completely different mm. sort of conversation. Which about gets business. you at the boardroom table, yeah, as which you say. Is where agencies have always wanted to be. Absolutely. I mean, that's where the fun is. Yeah. You know, that's where you have the impact <laughs> and you can make the really exciting yeah. decisions. Um, and if you can, you know, the world is changed hugely in terms of the data that is mm. around. And if you can utilize that data properly rigorously in a framework it all sounds very boring but actually it's a way of systematizing something which is quite nebulous and there is no substitute for comms nows and yeah. for instinct and for knowing the market and for knowing how people are going to react but if you can overlay that with a rigorous evidence base yeah. then you know hopefully you get the best of both worlds you get the, the ear of the ceo who's used to talking in evidence um but is also you know potentially doesn't have such an instinct for comms mm. um combine the two and i think that's quite a nice package for, for comms people to take to the yeah. boardroom table winner winner chicken dinner mm. so you might oh. say mm. so, i like it <laughs> <laughs> tell me about some of the main findings from your report so we to, we um, split it up into um, these multiple stakeholders, which um, the US Roundtable, I'm sure your listeners will be very mm-hmm. familiar with their move towards focusing on multiple stakeholders. Um, uh, and we found, for example, there's um, quite a lot of evidence, uh, academic evidence, that companies with higher CSR scores can get cheaper capital. Okay. Um, there's uh, studies around um, employees, as I talked about, you know, if, if um, you're in the 100 best companies to work. And this was a study over 25 odd years found that um, companies who had higher employee satisfaction generated a three and a half percent value weighted return over a risk free rate. So these are um, uh, these are evidential proved academic, independent, yep. no axe to grind, no skin in the game, um, uh, studies that um, I would challenge, you know, hard-bitten CEOs, cynical a lot of the time, yeah. rightly so, because yeah. they've seen fads come and they've seen fads go. Um, but with that kind of evidence, it's difficult to dispute it. Yeah, absolutely. And were there any surprises for you in the findings? Um I guess I I was I was hoping that the research would show a lot of what it showed but I was also very conscious that I didn't um of confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to pick and choose and I I, I you know you you work at the Bank of England long enough, you know that if you say something too emphatically, it puts a socking great big target on your back and someone is going to shoot at you. Absolutely. Um, but equally, if you're not um, confident and, and if you're wishy-washy, then what's the point of doing this stuff? Mm. Uh, so um, I think, if anything, the surprise was that genuinely most of the data that we came across was moving in this direction. 
Um, there's been a recent study, actually, by George Serafim, who's very well respected in this space, an academic, um, and he was looking at um, performance between... Uh, he was looking at ES, the link between ESG factors and... Um, think it was profitability it might have been return on investment I can't remember forgive me but um, uh, he essentially found that across a broad swathe of data there was no link between profit and purpose okay. but but big caveat if you then took firms that um, operationalize that purpose beyond the boardroom into the middle management which is the engine room of value creation yeah then there was a link okay so again, you know, this is music to comms people's ears yeah. because, again, it shows the importance of socialising that purpose, both within the firm mm. so that everyone, it actually means something to people, um, but also obviously outside so that customers, investors and so forth can um, gain value from it too. Yeah, and I guess unless you're taking something inside and getting everyone on board first, then it's really hard to take something outside if it feels like a, not necessarily a new proposition, but a new way of framing what the purpose of the business is. So it's it's internal to external more than just board to external. Which right? is where the authenticity yeah. comes in. I think you know, we're in an age of radical transparency. We're all incredibly cynical about spin doctors. You know, we know when we're being had by and large, and even we suspect we're being had even when we're not being had because we're all coated with this layer of cynicism now. So I think people can sniff that if you're um, saying it for the sake of it and then you're publicising it externally mm. before you've actually got the genuine buy-in motoring internally, I think yeah. people can tell that. So I think you're right. I think you need to, you know, um, do it properly, build it foundationally mm -hmm. from the bottom up, which is getting... Um, getting the board to lead and getting the bottom support from bottom up internally, and then, then you can then it almost sort of sells itself, doesn't it? You always yeah. just sort of need to let people speak and and the rest follows. But it, that means it's almost part of a business transformation piece and a cultural change piece, not just a comms Absolutely. piece as well, which is great for you guys who are in the strategic. Um, kind of engine room of helping companies express all this internally and externally, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's, it's also the very hard part, isn't mm, it? You know, I mean, yeah. cultural change, as, as we all know, is is the hardest part. Yes, and it's not a six-week project. No, it's not. <laughs> and again, that's where we come into the multiple timeframes, and we're very much, um, we would love to um, have a model where we partner with businesses mm. um, and we're, we embed with them as well. So we, we're very happy to spend time in our, part, our um, clients' offices, yeah. working alongside them. There's no substitute for getting to know a company and an organisation and, more importantly, the people um, than actually working alongside them, yeah. um, you know, preferably with a staff pass. Really exciting. You don't have to be escorted to the toilet. That shows you really arrived. <laughs> Bring on the staff pass, <laughs> yes. Jenny. So um, now I found a little bit of research which was out today from the Institute of Business Ethics, and this says that... 57% uh, of the public believe that business behaves ethically, and that's down from 60, 62% last year. This doesn't seem to square with the number of businesses who are talking about ethics and sustainability and purpose. Um, how how do you explain the kind of the the um, the levels of kind of trust mm. in what businesses are saying in what businesses are clearly trying to do. I think it comes back to that point about the cynicism, mm. um, which is the danger of purpose washing, isn't it? You know, it's if 
in fact, the sort of the um, unintended consequence of research like this, which shows that if you have a purpose, you're going to have a lower cost of capital or a higher rate of return, is people thinking, great, I want a bit of that. I'll tell everyone I've got this brilliant purpose and, and bingo. We're going to get the benefits from it. But that, of course, over time, erodes mm. <laughs> the integrity of, of and undermines exactly what these studies are finding. Yeah. So I think you've absolutely got to be very alert to that. Um, and, you know, I mean, how, how, how deep do you want to go? I mean, you could get into a whole discussion about how our political environment is contributing to that erosion yeah. of trust and that we really need to rebuild that um, and that that must filter through to people's general levels of cynicism about anyone who's sort of in these positions of power, whether it's polit- politicians or business people. Um, you know, people are just just a little bit more cynical and, yeah. and mistrusting these days. Um, you contributed very kindly to our Vox Pop the day before the general election in the UK last wrong, week. <laughs> I don't think you got it horribly wrong. <laughs> I think I did. Um, what, what's your take on what, not just the campaign leaning up to result because we all know where we are now, although we, well, we think we know where we are. That could change tomorrow. Um, what's your take on how things are probably going to play out in terms of um, public affairs comms uh, mm. from the government and in terms of brands and companies need to bear in mind over the, the coming weeks because we're still, we're now immediately back into kind of talking about Brexit not mm. talking about general election mm. what, what are your concerns in terms of all priorities when you're advising your clients from now on in? I mean it's a great question, I think um, to sort of slightly um, bat it into the long grass a little bit I do think that um, perhaps the quality of debate in the run-up in the election campaign mm. was so dominated by, you know, the, the Brexit debate and, yeah. and the sort of polarisation that perhaps there wasn't as much insight into the kind of government that might come out of it the other end. Yeah. And also there was obviously a lot of speculation that... Um, Either way, the majority wouldn't be great, and so some degree of compromise would have been needed. Mm-hmm. So we're in a landscape, I think, now which um, perhaps is slightly uncharted in that there is a larger than, it, than a majority than there might have been, which yeah. gives more, um, and there's a fixed term, so there's certainty um, about how long that majority should last. So I think there's going to be a lot of um, reading the tea leaves over the next mm. day, d- literally days, actually weeks, <laughs> as well um, yeah. as to um, where where the um, uh, the rhetoric translates into policy. Whether the fact that you know a lot of the red turned blue and the impact that that will genuinely have on the government's priorities. But I think yeah. fundamentally, our message would be that hopefully this does unlock a certain amount of investment and cash and, um, uh, you know, momentum mm. that was piling up for some kind of resolution. Yeah. So hopeful that although there will be some continuing uncertainty until we know how long the transition is and what kind of deal is going to come out of it, yeah. there does seem to be this collective sigh of relief that at last something is going to be unlocked and the paralysis will be relieved. Yeah, it's been an interesting position for for lots of people hasn't it because actually I don't know how many people were actually anticipating a like a huge majority government um and there's you know that's 
there's a lot of certainty in that, actually, mm. which we haven't had for a while. Mm. Not saying I agree with <laughs> the result, but actually you can see how moving forward, that's one thing out of the... Mm out of the equation and it's all been going on for a very long time so we shall see how that plays mm, out anyway um, it's it's been one of those issues that's quite difficult to separate the professional and personal I know, from and I, I think everyone just wants to stop yeah. talking about it now yeah. one way or another um, now going back to your lovely study which is beautifully written how as we said there's loads of stuff about purpose at the moment mm-hmm. Jenny how does this differentiate what Appella's trying to do or say something new I think what we're trying to get across with this is that we want to look at this properly. We don't want to just polish the outside of the box. We want to open the box, have a rummage around, fix what's in there. Okay. I think we'd like to, um, uh, I hope this isn't self-importantly, but we would like to think that um, communications professionals can um, use the evidence in the database in this multi-stakeholder world um, to drive decisions, proper decisions internally. So, mm. for example, if you can see that, um, you know, the, the reputation amongst your employees is somewhere down here and the best in class is somewhere up here in your sector, what's why the difference? Yeah. Unpick that difference and then go to the decision makers and say, well, if you want to go from down here to up here, you need to do X, Y, Z. So, as I say, it becomes a driver of decisions as opposed to just either a mopper-upper of yeah. of mistakes or an avoider of disasters that yeah. no one ever thanks you for because the disaster doesn't happen, so you don't know how bad okay. it would have been. Um, so I guess more front-foot proactive than reactive. That's what I would love. Yeah. That's what I would love to be able to for our profession to be able to contribute going forward. Yeah, and I, I for me, um, you know, I spent three years at Weber Shanwick. I've worked for a lot of big PR agencies as a copywriter and editor and um, a lot of the award entries I ended up drafting were were, um, were had that exact hope that actually it's not just comms being bolted on that mm. they actually change the way things are done in that sector not just in that business um, and I think purpose is one of those whether it's a label or not it feels like it's a way of um, of really kind of coalescing what a business is trying to do for, for good mm. And I think the moment you get into seeing it as a crisis management tool or something to offset um, damage or harm, then um, you're probably on the on the mm. wrong track. Mm. So I mean, I, obviously, that's that's a, a part of the job. And, yeah. you know, the one thing that you know for certain is that something bad will happen at some point. Yeah. Um, you can't um, cover for all risks. So obviously, you need the good crisis comms protocol in place for when it does and the good governance and and the good network to be able to call on when that happens. And so again, it's not to denigrate that. And, and I hope it's not a vain hope. You know, I, I, um, I'm, I'm very aware that uh, people have been talking about comms contributing and being at the table mm. a lot more for an awful long time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, and, but at some point, you have to reach that tipping point, I'm hopeful. And the more data we get, the more evidence we get, the more um, you know moving parts and multiple stakeholders, which is very, very difficult to navigate, the more radical the transparency, which has been utterly transformative in the last five or 10 years. Yeah. If that doesn't you know, give us a legitimate seat at the top table, then mm. struggling to think of what will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's next for 2020 for Appella? Everyone's got their 2020 vision. What's yours, Jenny? Gosh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, to do great work, to um, get... Uh, to, obviously, we'd love to get some great new clients. Yeah. Um, 
we've, as you mentioned, we've already made um, a couple of hires, mm. um, uh, which, uh, which is again, it's it's fantastic to feel that momentum building behind a business. Um, we would like to do some more thought leadership and some more um, research and papers around, generally around the theme of multiple stakeholders and, yeah. and what that means. Um, so we would love to just, you know, we don't need to take over the world, but we would like to be thought of very highly um, and with integrity and with rigour in okay. what we do. I've got no doubt that's going to happen. What are you up to for Christmas? Family, family, family. <laughs> Always. Yes. Will there be fires? Fires? Yeah. Like, you know, a fire in the grate. Well, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> Because not setting light. <laughs> no, not setting light. You can do that light. in January. Yes. But. No, it's funny you say that because I love an open fire, um, but we we're we're trying to be very environmentally friendly, and we've just bought the electric hybrid car and yeah. gone to you know renewable electricity supplier and all that kind of stuff. And apparently, fires aren't very environmentally oh. friendly. I know. So now, I if I do well, if I do persuade our family to have a fire, I'm going to be. Guilty because it's anyway. So the answer is I would love to have them, yeah. but it's whether or not I'm going to be allowed to have them. I think you can still have mulled wine in front of an electric fire. Yeah, I think we'll yeah. we'll let okay. that go Good. in the um, <laughs> in the interest of sustainability. Yeah, um, Jenny Scott, thank you so much for joining. Oh, me well, thank you very chamber. much for having me. Uh, have a lovely Christmas. Thank you. You too. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber, brought to you by the Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Today.